Our scripture reading this morning comes again from the book of James. I invite you to turn there with me if you have a Bible. If you don't, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I'm going to read from James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. You'll find this on page 1013 of your pew Bible. We're nearing the end of our series on James. We'll have this morning and then two more Sundays before we shift gears. So let's give our attention to this closing section of the book of James. James 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross of which we have sung, and we thank you that it is not just a song in our lips, but salvation for our souls. We pray now that as we come to study your word, you would come and speak clearly, enable us to hear clearly, that your word would be a great blessing to us. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. So if you're a Christian this morning, one of two things is happening to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then necessarily one of two things is happening. Either you are becoming more holy, you're becoming more like Jesus, or you're becoming more of a hypocrite. You're becoming less like your profession. These are really the only two options available to us. More holy or more hypocritical. More like Jesus or not really any more like Jesus. As you sit here in church this morning, as we say these things that we have said and sung and read and prayed, as we go through this together, either you are being drawn closer into a relationship with him and you're becoming more like him, or they're just the words of your lips and the empty uh, sort of demonstration of at your limbs, and they're not really reflecting a life that's been changed by his grace. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, two options before us. One is to become more holy. One is to become more of a hypocrite. Personally, I often feel like I make one small step toward the farmer, one small step toward holiness. And the moment I do that, I'll take one giant leap toward hypocrisy on the other side. There's this battle that rages within me, becoming more like Christ, wrestling with my own sin, wrestling with my own brokenness. And this dynamic has been alive and well this week as I have reflected upon the sermon on gospel patience. 
This dynamic has been alive and well for me as we've reflected upon gospel patience, particularly alive and well as my family took a road trip this week. Now, you may say, well, of course, 11 hours in a car with four kids, that's bound to test any man's patience, right? And, well, amen to that. However, the kids weren't the problem. (laughs) It was this guy that was the problem. Um, let me just share from the journey down there a few things that happened. First of all, the glory of technology that is our GPS has this one feature that drove me crazy, and that's the feature that gives you the time of arrival. You know that feature? So it'll tell you, right, you're going to be there at 6 o'clock. Well, for some reason, it became my mission. Whatever that time said, I was going to make it one minute earlier. Okay? <laughs> and of course, as you speed up, it then clocks down, well, now 5.59. 5.58, I'll show you, right? <laughs> And so I have this like 11-hour battle <laughs> with my GPS system. Then, in the midst of that, it kind of reached its climax when this other technical, technological feature of, of cruise control, right? Um, I'm one of these people who loves to use cruise control. However, I'm also one of these people, and you're out here too, right? Who, once they've put cruise control on, hate taking it off, right? It feels like kind of personal failure if you have to press the brake and the light goes off, you know? And so you're cruising along, and then some uh, pulls out in front of you, some truck pulls out in front of you to overtake another truck and takes forever doing it. It reached its low point when I had been on cruise control for 57 minutes, okay? <laughs> yes, I was timing it, right? And I was three, three minutes short of the hour. That's excellent, okay? I was like, yeah, look at this. Been on cruise control for an hour. And then some guy in a truck pulled out in front of me, and I like... You know, I did, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I did the whole, like, drove, I, I tried not to take it off, you know, I drove real close to him, and then, like, had to take it off. And then he pulled back over to the side, and he kind of gave me this look, kind of like, dude, what's your deal, you know? And I gave him this look, and it kind of, my ridiculousness dawned on me, because my look was like, do you not realize I have cruise control on, right? <laughs> Gospel patience. I thought a few days by the pool had sort of washed some of the DC craziness out of me. And it has washed some of it out of me. Rosie said to me this morning, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm just relaxed, you know? <laughs> um, but on the way home, I-95, we passed Richmond yesterday. I could just feel it coming back. I could just feel DC coming back into my veins, you know? Gospel patience, a thing I struggle with. And I dare say I'm not alone in this. Our town is not known for its patience. When was the last time that that you lost yours, either in a big way or in a small way, either with a person or with an inanimate object like your GPS? When was the last time for you? This passage gives us three commands, and that's how we're going to structure our text. Verses 5 through 11 give us three commands, and we're going to use them to to walk through our time together. uh, Three commands tell us, firstly, what we're not meant to do in verse 9. Secondly, what we are meant to do in verse 7. And then thirdly, how we can do it in verse 8. What we're not meant to do, what we are meant to do, and then how we can do it. Let's dive in and look at this together. The first thing I want to see is in verse 9 where we see what we're not meant to do. Read there with me. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What we're not meant to do is grumble. Let's just walk our way through this verse clause by clause and see four things. First, what we're not meant to do, grumble. Not meant to grumble. Do not grumble, brothers. On one level, this is a very clear, straight up and uncomplicated teaching. We're not to complain, fuss, moan, 
a bellyache. You know those people who seem like they're not happy if they're not complaining about something? Whether it's the weather or traffic or business. The kind of people who could start an argument in an empty phone box. The kind of people who just, just all isn't well with the world unless there's something to complain about. And our pastor says, do not grumble. Don't have a negative spirit. Now, this isn't addressing personality. It's not saying all Christians should be optimistic, carefree people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this kind of negative spirit should not be a part of your DNA. It should not be a part of your makeup if you believe in Jesus Christ. Perhaps our understanding of this term is is deepened by seeing how it's used or translated elsewhere. In Hebrews 13 verse 7, this term that's here appears grumble is translated as groaning. Let me read the verse to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Or Mark 7, verse 34, this term grumble is translated as sighing when a deaf man is brought to Jesus and before healing him, Jesus sighs, he groans, he he grumbles as he lifts his eyes to heaven and then heals the man. What's the point? The point is that this term can be used in an appropriate way, in a right way, in a proper way, if it's in response to sin. So leaders might groan, they might grumble if their people don't follow them as they ought. And Jesus groans, he grumbles, he sighs when he's confronted with the severity of sin and how it's brought misery upon humanity. So here in James 5, in saying do not grumble, James is saying don't complain and fuss about relatively minor things as if you're dealing with the severity of sin. Don't moan and bellyache about the small stuff of life as if you're being confronted with some major sin issue or brokenness. Have the right perspective here. I wonder how often you and I lose that proper perspective. The second thing we see after we see what we're not meant to do is who we're not meant to do it against. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Isn't this interesting that James is giving us a very targeted and specific application? Of course, in a general sense, we ought not to grumble about anything or against anyone. But here James is specifically saying, do not grumble against one another, brothers. He's targeting how we treat our fellow believers. He's particularly addressing that tendency that Christians have to complain about one another. In doing this, James is following the example of his big brother Jesus, who was at pains to guard the way in which Christians treat one another. He says in John 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. An amazing thing that Jesus attaches his own reputation to how Christians treat each other. The world will know who Jesus is based on how believers interact with each other. And so James is driving this point home. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. I wonder what people would conclude about Jesus based on the way that we treat each other here in this community. Third thing we see in verse 9, do not grumble. Do not grumble against each other. Why? Third thing, so that you may not be judged. You see it there? Do not grumble so that you may not be judged. See, we're tempted to make judging, uh, sorry, grumbling, just a small thing. That small complaint just doesn't seem like that big 
a deal. But James says, no, it is a big deal because it leads to judgment. Castor reminds back to the Old Testament and the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness following the great climactic event of the Old Testament, their exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember what they did? Having recently had this miraculous deliverance, they soon started to complain. They forgot about uh, how hard slavery was, the hard work that they endured, the bitter conditions that they struggled through, the way in which their children were murdered before their very eyes. Instead, all they remembered was the things that they'd enjoyed while in slavery. They complained that they lacked now onions and cucumbers and melons. Numbers 14, read this stuff. It's too crazy to make up. They are so enraptured by summer fruits that they forget the horrors of slavery. And so they start to grumble and grumble against their leaders and then against God. What is God's response to their grumbling? Judgment. Because of their grumbling, the generation that left Egypt all died in the wilderness. They turned to dust amidst the sand because the grumbling of their lips revealed something about their hearts. It revealed a spiritual problem of pride, of anger, of discontent, of lack of faith. And so grumbling might seem like a small thing, but it's a big thing because it reveals our hearts. And because it's a big thing, uh, it will be judged. Ask yourself, what do the things I complain about, what are the things you complain about, reveal about your heart? Fourth thing we see from verse 9, having seen that we're not to grumble, not to grumble against one another, not to grumble so we won't be judged, is some motivation to help us not grumble. Behold, James says, see, notice this, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. This it really reminds us of, of two things, or teaches us about two things. First of all, just the nearness of Jesus. That as we grumble, as we complain, as we say all sorts of things to other people or even within our own hearts, Jesus hears every word that is spoken. I'm sure if you're a parent, you've had that experience where you hear your children fighting and you go and you can stand at the door and just listen to the scene play out, all the while knowing every word that is said. You walk in and they think you're omniscient. It's brilliant, right? Um, but you know every word because you heard every word. And so it is, Jesus hears every word. But secondly, this language of being at the door is, is used to remind us of his nearness and remind us of the fact that he is coming back, that Jesus is at the door to return at any moment. And this is why it's a, a motivating thing, because I don't want Jesus to come back in the middle of a self-centered, petty tirade about my first world problems. When he comes back, I want to be found ready and waiting. I want to be found doing his work. I don't want to be found fussing, moaning, complaining, bellyaching. I want to be ready for his return. How do you want to be found when he arrives? We're to live in that way. I've asked a lot of questions already, but let me ask five more for kind of our corporate self-awareness, but also just to apply these truths into our hearts a little more. How are you doing on the grumbling scale? Number one, do you complain about things that you never pray about? Do you complain about things that you never pray about? Reveals a heart that is that is wandered off track. Two, do you complain to friends and family, uh, basically to those who will agree with you, without, without ever talking to those who are in a position to actually do something about it? Do you fuss and want to complain behind closed doors and then never actually seek to bring any proactive change? You might be grumbling. Three, 
uh, is your, if your complaint is not addressed to your satisfaction, do you bring it up again and again and again and again? Is it hard for people to disagree with you, have a genuine disagreement with you? If so, you may be a grumbler. Number four, do you condemn the past without encouraging growth for the future? When you come to complain about something, do you just have a list of complaints and things that are wrong? Or do you have some positive and productive solutions as well? If not, you may be a grumbler. Number five, do you take responsibility for your own role in the situation that you're complaining about? This command not to grumble is powerfully relevant to us. And I ask you to identify in your own heart where grumbling is alive and well so that we might do our second thing. Instead of doing that, what are we meant to do? Number two, we're to be patient. Look with me at verses seven and eight. As we put off grumbling, we're to put on patience. The command appears first in verse seven, be patient, therefore, brothers. Then again, in verse eight, you also be patient. Now, this term patience is the Greek word makrothomia, which is a compound word made of two words. First, the word macro, which like in English just means large, and then thumia, which means anger or desire. So literally, you could translate this word as as large anger. More helpfully would be the idea of being long-suffering. That's the idea that's contained in this term patience. Patience is the ability to face trying or difficult circumstances without giving in to anger. It's the definition for you. The ability to face trying or difficult circumstances without giving in to anger. The patient person does not express anger prematurely, either externally through some physical violence or through a sharp word of the tongue, but also not internally. And this perhaps is a more challenging thing. Uh, it's impossible to, be outward, to, to appear outwardly patient, but not to be internally patient. And this happened to me um, a week or so ago when we were traveling back from General Assembly, and I was literally preparing this sermon at the time. I had my laptop out, I was sitting in the plane, I was typing away, and then I just got the, you know, you can sort of get that, I got the sense that the lady beside me was reading what I was writing, okay? <laughs> So, you know, I didn't really think a whole lot about it. It just a little, felt a little awkward, but I didn't really think a lot about it. But then she started giving me suggestions. <laughs> Which I thought was a bold move. <laughs> and I thought about a holier way of saying this, but I didn't know how to, so I'd just say it as it is. Which is that also her suggestions were terrible, okay? It was like, it was very, very it was just all straight legalism, you know? Um, And it was interesting because externally, I remained patient. I smiled. I listened. I think I even said thank you. Not sure what for, but I did, right? But internally, there was no patience in my heart. Internally, I was sort of self-righteous, frustrated, and very dismissive of, of this lady. So you see how impatience can manifest externally, yes, with angry words, or internally with an angry heart. In either way, there's a lack of patience there, giving in to anger. A patient person instead has slow, deliberate, gracious self-control. We see an illustration of this kind of patience in verse 7. If you look with me, we see this illustration of a farmer in Palestine. See how the farmer waits for the precious, precious, (laughs) precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. 
I read that the early rains came in October and they softened up the soil so that you could plant. Then the late rains would come in March and they would swell the grain and guarantee a good crop. The point that's being made is that if you expect fruit before its due season, it will end badly. If you expect fruit before its due season, you will receive no harvest at all. To receive the precious fruit, the farmer has to wait. The farmer has to be patient. It's like in our household when uh, we make a meal in the crock pot. Okay? After about an hour, it smells great. After an hour and a half, the men in our house all try to pick at it. Okay? Uh, but it takes six, eight hours before that meal is ready, before it's tender and falls apart and is delicious. Right? To enjoy the preciousness of that meal, you need uh, patience. And so often uh, we see in our own lives that as grumbling poisons relationships. So patience enables relationships to flourish. Grumbling poisons our relationships, while patience enables them to flourish. Relationships need early and late rains. Relationships need, I guess, a crockpot. And what we're being presented with here is really a, a beautiful vision of Christian community. It's this vision where people are patient with one another and love one another well enough to, or enough to, to, to hang in so that the relationships will flourish. So when someone is either just difficult or perhaps awkward or obnoxious, uh, we don't just dismiss them. We don't just write them off. We see this is part of the late and early rains. We have the ability to, to hang in with them and allow these relationships to grow over time. And so you'll find, for a lot of people, that some of the strongest relationships they had are with people who they started badly with. Right? need this ability as a, as a Christian community to, to hang in through good and bad together so that relationships might grow. How long do we hang in together for? Verse 7 gives a somewhat humor answer, humorous answer. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. <laughs> So forever. Okay. You got that? Good. Nice point. <laughs> I wonder, though, how you, would, um, how would you characterize your relationships with other people? How would you characterize your relationships, especially with those people that you find difficult? Uh, are you a grumbler? Do you give in to anger, to pride, to dismissing them? Or are you patient, deliberate, slow, gracious, and self-controlled? With them. What we're called to here is patience. What we're not to do, grumble. What we are to do, be patient. Thirdly, let's look quickly at how we can do it. How can we live this life of patience? How can we foster patience within us? Because I think we all know that it's not a thing we can work up ourselves. Willpower just doesn't do the trick. When you feel anger rising, when you feel frustrated about something, you can say, stop feeling that way. And it just doesn't help. It doesn't work practically. So what can we do? James gives us the answer in verse 8 when he says, you also be patient. Third command, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. It's a word that just means to strengthen. Strengthen your hearts. Throughout the book of James, he has given us instruction on the heart. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he told us, do not deceive your hearts. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he said, do not let selfish ambition reign 
in our hearts. In verse 8 of chapter 4, he told us to purify our hearts. In verse 5 of chapter 5 here, he warned us not to fatten our hearts. Throughout James's point has been a very simple one, which is this, that your life is but the overflow of your heart. Your life is but the overflow of your heart. Again and again, we've seen this. Whatever is happening on the outside, it's just a reflection of what's happening on the inside. The external is driven and determined by the internal. And so he tells us here to establish or, or strengthen our hearts because external patience can only ever be the fruit of internal heart change. And this kind of internal heart change for patients we know, like all heart change, can only take place and can only ever come by the gospel and through his grace. Peter, whose letter parallels, uh, whose second letter parallels the book of James in a number of ways, puts it this way. He encourages us to be patient until the Lord returns with, with these words. The Lord is not slow. This is Second Peter 3, verse 8. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, he's saying, when you're tempted to be impatient, remember how patient the Lord has been with you. When you are tempted to be impatient, reflect upon how you have tested the Lord's patience. Sermon in a sentence, the same as uh, previous weeks. The heart that experiences the patience of God will be patient with others. The heart that experiences the patience of God will be patient with others. If you don't realize how patient God has been with you, you will never have the fuel to be patient with other people. On the other hand, if you live in the awareness of God's patience with you, then patience for others will fill your heart as well. A child who misbehaves drives you crazy until you remember how rebellious you've been and how patient your father has been with you. The spouse that aggravates drives you crazy until you remember how unfaithful you have been and how faithful the true groom has been to you. That friend who frustrates you drives you crazy until you remember how foolish you've been and how faithful the true friend has been to you. Remembering God's patience brings patience to our heart in the same way that remembering the log in your own eye makes you feel differently about the speck in your brothers. It's the grace of the gospel and remembering how we've been overwhelmed by it that brings patience to our hearts. James illustrates this by pointing to the example of the prophets in verses 10 and 11. Uh, The prophets in general and then Job in particular. So we think of Isaiah who remained patient despite years of rejection from God's people. Think of Jeremiah who remained patient although his message, the sermon that he preached was only one of judgment and disaster and danger and defeat. Or we think of Job listed here who remained patient despite losing everything. How was it that they remained patient? James tells us in verse 11. They were patient because they knew, like we know, The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Men who had tasted grace, tasted patience from God's own hand, were able to extend the same to others. The heart that experiences the patience of God will be patient with others. The passage tells us three things. What we're not to do, grumble. What we are to do, be patient. 
how we can do it by strengthening our hearts in the gospel of grace. My prayer, prayer for myself personally is that I will grow in this area, become more holy, not more hypocritical. My prayer for us as a community is that we will grow in these same qualities and be known as a place of, of kindness and, and gentleness and compassion and patience. And at the very least, this kind of patience will make your drive more enjoyable. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, it seems like your word calls us to so many things that just aren't natural to us. Patience, generosity, uh, taming our tongues, wisdom. And yet these things, Lord, are so innate and so natural to the gospel and to you and to who you are. So we thank you that your word calls us to them because we know that in Growing in these areas, we become not only more like your son, but become more like you've intended for us to be, more uh, like you indeed will make us be for, for eternity. So I pray, Lord, that just from these moments of reflection just now, that your grace would dwell up in our hearts, that we would see ourselves as people who have been dealt such patience, and that it would change the way in which we interact with each other and be a great witness to our world. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.